Please turn me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Acts 8, 26 through 40. Now remember, the book of Acts focuses on the ministry of God the Holy Spirit through His people. So far in Acts, we've seen the start, the rise, and the spread of the church. The church started in Jerusalem and grew, remember, but then severe persecution came after the martyrdom of Stephen and the people of God scattered. But look, as they scattered, so did the good news of Christ because they took that good news with them when they scattered. I mean, they couldn't help but talk about Jesus. They couldn't help but share Christ with their new neighbors. And isn't that how it should be for the people of God? Isn't that how it should be? And so the persecution that was supposed to cripple the church did the opposite. And don't you love it when things backfire on Satan? I love that. And now the Gospel is going out from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. And we've seen that in chapter 8 as Philip went to Samaria and was used by God to bring true revival to that town and to that region. Today we continue to look at the amazing ministry of Philip, verse 26. Let's go ahead and read that. Verse 26, Acts chapter 8. Now an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went. And behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, he was returning. And sitting in his chariot, (laughs) he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. We're going to stop here for now. And here in today's passage, we find eight events regarding Philip and this uh, Ethiopian man. And we can learn much from these events. The first event is this, that an angel spoke to Philip and told him to go toward the south. Let me just say that when an angel tells you to go somewhere, you go, right? You go. But this is an interesting command. I mean, Philip is to go, uh, Philip is now to the north of Jerusalem in Samaria, and God has used him to spark a great revival there. And while the Samaritans were despised, utterly despised by the Jews, they certainly weren't despised by the Lord. And so, so many people are getting saved and then baptized in Samaria that the whole town is full of the joy of the Lord. So, question is, why take Philip away from all that? Why? Well, here's why. Because God wants to save an Ethiopian man. And He wants Philip to be be the means of doing that. See, God is the one who saves, right? But God uses His people in the process. And here we see that in this passage. And so in the sovereignty of God, God sends an angel to Philip. Can you imagine? I mean, we've seen this, right? Angels are scary. And most of the time when people see an angel, they are utterly terrified. And that's why angels always seem to be saying, don't be afraid. Philip's initial reaction to seeing this angel isn't recorded. But I would venture to say that it was a pretty frightening event having this experience. Now, note that angels are indeed real. Angels are not glorified human beings. And we don't become angels when we die. No, rather, angels are created beings who haven't existed from all eternity. And there are a vast number of angels out there. Angels are spiritual beings that don't have physical bodies. Their number is fixed. They don't die. And although they can appear in the form of men, they can only be in one place at one time. So, do angels have wings? Some do. They're called seraphs, but most don't. 
Angels are stronger than men, but not omnipotent. They are greater than men in knowledge, but not omniscient. And they are more noble than men, but not omnipresent. Some angels are stronger and greater than other angels, and they don't marry or reproduce like humans do. The job of angels is simply this, to serve God. They worship and praise God. They have helped guide some of the people of God. They served as messengers to communicate God's will to men. God has used angels to provide physical needs for His people. They have helped keep God's people out of physical danger, as in the case of Daniel and the lion's den and his three friends in the fiery furnace. They have helped get God's people out of imminent danger, as was the case in Acts chapter 5. And they have strengthened and encouraged God's people, and on and on it goes. And here we find an angel coming to speak to Philip. Arise, go to the south along the road which goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. He started out in Jerusalem with all the other believers. He then went up to the north to Samaria where everyone was scattered. He's still there at the beginning of our passage for today. But now the angel tells him to go back down to the south, back to Jerusalem, past Jerusalem, onto the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's called the desert road on the map because Luke adds at the end of verse 26 that it's desert. It's very interesting. For this road eventually leads into North Africa. And so we find that the gospel is now going to break forth into another of the boundary markers established in Acts 1.8 to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, expanding out from there, and now out from there to the ends of the earth. And Ethiopia at that time was considered to be the end of the earth. Now, there were two roads that led south from Jerusalem. One went directly south, skirted the Dead Sea, and eventually led down to Edom. The other was this road that Philip was called to take, which led southwest through Bethlehem over to Gaza, which was about 50 miles away from Jerusalem, and then it went down to Africa. Now, Gaza was one of the five principal cities of the Philistines. The city had been destroyed 50 years earlier, but was now rebuilt as a Roman city, and Philip is to take this desert road from Jerusalem, down from Samaria to Jerusalem, down over to Gaza. This probably didn't make much sense to Philip. Not at all. I mean, why? Well, God had clearly told him to go through the angel, and he's all about obeying the Lord whom he trusted and loved. So I can hear him. God comes first, and I trust him, even though I don't always understand his ways. Why go away from this to, to what? I don't know. He's going to find out. Side note. Note how God called Philip away to share the faith with one single African man. Just one man. Just one. Is one soul worth all that trouble? <laughs> Is one soul worth leaving the great ministry going on in Samaria? Is one soul uh, worth Philip going all this way for? What's the answer? Absolutely. For one soul is enough to move the heart of God to love and His hand to action. That's a good thing for us, is it not? That God cares for individuals. That God cares for you personally and intimately. That's a good thing. Question, why has God put you where He has you? Why are you in the job that you're in? Why are you in the family that you're in? Why are you around the people that you're around? Well, certainly to share Christ with those people around you, and perhaps one of them will come to a saving knowledge of Christ because of your presence and because of your witness there. See, God uses people to bring souls to Him, and He put you 
where he has you for a reason. Please don't squander it. And look, Philip arose and he went. Now, note how Philip doesn't know why he's going. He just knows that God wants him to go. Philip, go. Okay, Lord. And it's while he's on this road, this desert road, that he sees this guy in a chariot. So second, we find that an Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah. Look at verse 27. Behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. And sitting in his chariot, he's reading the prophet Isaiah. It's very interesting. The fact that the man was in a chariot shows us that this was a man of wealth and a man of power. I mean, most people traveled on foot. The prosperous rode on a donkey. Military generals rode on horseback, but a chariot signaled great wealth. Note also that the Ethiopian man was a eunuch. The term eunuch normally referred to a man who had been castrated, but that wasn't always the case. I believe it was the case here. That said, castrated men were preferred as court officials because of their condition. It ensured sexual fidelity. Eunuchs often served with a royal harem, and their condition, again, ensured safety for those women in that harem. The people also believed that a eunuch's condition enhanced single-hearted loyalty. Becoming a eunuch meant that this man traded the hope of family for wealth, for security, and for a status among the elite. Note also that the man was from Ethiopia. Now today, Ethiopia is a pretty small country, but not then, not at all. For at this time in Acts 8, Ethiopia was basically all of Africa that was to the south of Egypt. It was a massive kingdom. The king of Ethiopia was thought of as a god. Because of that, the king was considered to be too great to take care of the menial tasks of the kingdom. And so he basically sat around and had everybody worship him. And so it was the queen mother who really ruled over the secular functions of the kingdom. Candace was her name, the queen of the Ethiopians. And it wasn't really a name, but it was a title, much like Pharaoh or king is a title. And so this queen mother was the one who really ruled over the affairs of the country while her son sat around and was worshipped by the people. This eunuch worked for the queen, which meant again that he was a eunuch of great power, of great authority. He was actually in charge of all the treasury for the queen. So clearly this guy was trusted, respected, and honored. He probably became a eunuch and worked for the royal harem. And then he had risen to this prominent position of being the treasurer to the queen. So again, he's powerful. He's wealthy. This guy had prestige, but look at this. He was empty and searching. He was empty. He had everything he wanted at his fingertips, but he wasn't satisfied. No, he was void of God and he's searching now. This, this, think about this. He had traveled at least 1,200 miles to make this trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem and it couldn't have been easy even in a chariot. The word for chariot most likely refers to those seats that you sit in that's on poles that's carried by men. But even if it was a step up from that and it was something that was pulled by an animal, this wasn't going to be an easy trip for him in any way. The first time that I went to Myanmar, I was able to ride in an ox cart. You know what that is? It's a cart pulled by an ox. Okay. <laughs> we rode in this ox cart in order to go see the place where Adoniram Judson was in prison. And Man, it was incredibly uncomfortable. I mean, wretchedly uncomfortable. And that's just a couple of hours that I was in it. But this Ethiopian man, he was determined. 
He's hungry for God. He's searching for the truth. His heart wasn't settled. He had no peace. He didn't know the joy and forgiveness that comes from God alone. See, Now look, this man had come to Jerusalem to worship. And now he's returning home. This tells us that he was most likely a Gentile God-fearer. Someone who had become enamored with Judaism. See, it could have been one of two things for this man. First, he could have been a proselyte. That means that he was a Gentile who would actually become a Jew. Or else he was a person who wasn't a Jew, but who simply attended Jewish synagogues and read the Jewish scriptures. He's a seeker, right? These people were called God-fearers, which is what I believe was the case with this man. That he was looking for the truth, and that he had been looking into Judaism for the answers. So what did he find there in Jerusalem? Well, as a Gentile, he would have access only to the court of the Gentiles there on the Temple Mount. And then only if his status as a eunuch was unknown, because eunuchs weren't allowed to go into the temple at all. Perhaps he had managed only to attend a synagogue there in Jerusalem. But the whole experience was certainly extremely frustrating for him. I mean, in all likelihood, he still felt like an outcast. For what he found there was empty. Right? He found ceremonialism, empty, rote ceremonialism. He found ritualism. He found cold formality. But he didn't find anything to fix the emptiness. He didn't find anything to fix the the, the thirst. He didn't find anything to fix the hunger in his heart. And so he went back to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem back to Africa with nothing more than with what he had come with. And so he's still searching, right? He didn't find the answer. He's still searching. And look, he's reading Isaiah the prophet. Note that this didn't come in book form. This would have come in the form of a scroll, and it would have had to have been unrolled, at least in part, to read. Now, most people didn't have scrolls of the Bible because they were very costly. And the fact that he had obtained a scroll from Isaiah indicates not only his wealth, but also his willingness to part with his treasured money to obtain something as priceless as the Word of God. So picture it. He goes to Jerusalem to worship God, and he leaves disappointed. But look, he's obtained this copy of Isaiah and he begins reading it on this long journey home. He's now on Isaiah 53. So he's read 53 chapters so far. He probably, he began right there at the beginning, Isaiah 1, I'm sure. He's now in Isaiah 53, which is one of the most messianic texts in the entire Old Testament. I mean, picture the man pouring over this Isaiah scroll, trying to find answers for his quest for truth and for a way to bring him nearer to the presence of God. And now he comes to Isaiah 53, and that's when Philip finds him. Is that not amazing? How lucky is he? Is there a better passage in the Old Testament in which Jesus is more clearly set forth as a remedy for our wretched condition? Hardly. And clearly Philip's arrival was no luck, right? It was no human accident. It was indeed a providential appointment by the Lord God Almighty. And that's how it works. That's how God does it. God saves. God is the one who is sovereign in salvation. Look at this. God sent an angel to tell Philip to go to a particular desert place. He arranged for Philip's and this man's paths to divinely cross. He prompted Philip to go up to the man's chariot. At that very moment, God had providentially arranged for the man to be reading aloud from Isaiah chapter 53. And God is clearly the one who is orchestrating this. That's how it works. And note that God did the very same thing for us 
who are saved today. You are not an accident. You understand that? Your salvation is not an accident. You're not a chance thing. No, you were in the plan of God before time began. And the Bible is very clear about that. He chose you. He sought you out. He changed your heart of stone. He saved you. And look, the other side of this is that he uses men and women to bring his sovereign plans to pass. He uses us in the process of bringing lost souls to salvation. It's an amazing thing. So third, look, the guy is in his chariot reading Isaiah, and Philip is divinely now upon this man, and that's when the Spirit spoke to Philip and said to him, go near and overtake this chariot, verse 29. The word spoke literally means to speak with an audible voice. So I think Philip heard the audible voice of God the Spirit in that moment. Now that's again, one of those unique things that we find in Acts, before the written Word of God was completed, God speaking to people in this way. We say, well, what about today? Hey, God still speaks today, right? Just a few days ago, God spoke to me. There's no doubt that it was God. God said as clear as day, I've loved you with an everlasting love. There wasn't the slightest doubt in my mind that these were the very words of God Himself. And so in that very moment on July 16th at 4.10 p.m., God was speaking to me. And then it got better. He said, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. How amazing is that? From an almighty God to a wretched sinner like me. With loving kindness, I have drawn you. What comfort, what hope, what love. And then I closed my Bible. And I pondered those words from Jeremiah 31, 1, 3. And although those words were written to give comfort to the Jewish people whom Jeremiah was originally writing to, they also had direct application and bearing for me, God's child. So yeah, God still speaks today clearly. How? Through His written Word right here, the Bible. And oh, how precious is the Bible because it's the very Word of God. And in it, God speaks in the 21st century for those For this is the very voice of God, and by this voice He speaks with absolute truth and absolute authority. By this voice He reveals His all-surpassing beauty. By this voice He reveals the deepest secrets of our hearts and His heart for us. So I believe that now that the Word of God is completed and fully equips us for every good work, God speaks to us now through His written Word. Yes, the Spirit can prompt and guide us, but we, we, that can be very subjective. So please be careful with that since the devil can easily fool us here. Also, please don't say that God spoke to you unless you have a scripture to back it up. Because if you don't, then all you have is your feelings and feelings can fool us. So be very careful. And then if you feel led to go and witness to someone, then go. If you feel led to call someone and talk to them, then call them. If you feel led to do something good for someone thinking that it's God who is prompting you to do it, then do it. But again, while God the Spirit spoke to Philip audibly here, these times in Acts were very unique times. And the way we today know for sure, right, that's the key, that God is speaking to us is through His written Word. And we do well to stick to that alone. Now, let's find out what happens next. Verses 30 through 35. Verse 30. So Philip ran to him. Isn't that great? Philip ran to him. And heard him reading the prophet Isaiah and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come and to sit with him. The place in the scripture which he read was this. (laughs) He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. 
And his humiliation, his justice was taken away. And who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. So the eunuch asked Philip and said, I ask you, of whom does the prophet say this? Of himself or of some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. So forth in this passage, we find that the Ethiopian man had had questions. Look, the command by the Spirit to Philip was clear. Go near, overtake the chariot. And Philip didn't say back, notice he didn't say, are you sure, Lord? Wouldn't uh, later be a better time, Lord? Wouldn't, w- won't that be imposing on the person or, or inconveniencing the person in the chariot, Lord? Do you really want me to go, Lord? I mean, I don't really want to go. No, he didn't do that, right? What did he do? He ran. He ran. I love that. I, go. Okay. And off you go. There's eagerness here. There's passion here. There's boldness here. Eagerness to obey God and passion to share the truth with a needy soul. Oh, that we would run to do God's business instead of standing still or meandering or crawling or making excuses. No, God wants holy runners for His glory, people who are passionate to obey Him, people who are zealous to do His work. And shouldn't that be the case with all of us who have been delivered from eternal wrath? Come on now. Philip quickly gets to the chariot and he hears a man reading out loud, Isaiah. Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? Nope. No one's explained it to me. Well now, Philip is the man to do just that, right? God's people are always ready to give an answer to the hope that is in them, and they're eager to share the truth with the lost souls around them. So Philip runs up to this guy, hears him reading the Bible, and says, you understand what you're doing? No, I need a, a Bible teacher. Is there, around, is there anyone around? Ha! Well, it just so happens. Well, get up on in here and help me out. And Philip is now sitting with a man in his chariot eager and willing to explain the Scriptures to this desperate man. And oh, what a passage it was. Here again, we see God's providential timing and guidance. Isaiah 53, 7. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away. Who will declare his generation? His life is taken from him. Who is Isaiah talking about? Who's the Ethiopian man reading about? Anybody here know? Jesus, right? It's a prophecy about Jesus. Talk about an incredibly wide open door for Philip. The Ethiopian man then asked, tell me, is the prophet Isaiah talking about himself or some other man? And so fifth from here, Philip went on and gladly explained the scriptures to him and he preached Jesus as a good news uh, that, uh, and, and the good news that comes through Christ to this desperate man. What would Philip have said? Well, first he would have said that Isaiah was talking about Jesus, right? The one who had fairly recently died on a cross and rose from the dead in Jerusalem, not far away from here. What, what would Philip have said about Jesus? Well, Philip would have said, certainly Philip would have walked through uh, Isaiah 53 with this Ethiopian man, and he would have explained what Isaiah chapter 53 says about Jesus, Well, what would he have said? Well, how Jesus was despised and rejected by men, right? Isaiah 53, 2 says that Jesus grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. Not fertile ground, but dry, hard ground. In other words, Jesus was going to have to face some extremely adverse conditions in his life from an early age. 
And like a plant trying to grow in dry, hard soil, his life wasn't going to be easy, right? He wasn't going to be wealthy. He wasn't going to live like a king should live. He was going to face hardship and turmoil in his life, and he did. Isaiah 53 goes on to say that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. There was nothing about his appearance that we should desire him. He was just plain. That's what our Lord and Savior was. He he was just another person in the crowd. No big deal. Commentator Matthew Poole says that when we look upon him, we would expect to find incomparable beauty and majesty in his countenance, in his carriage, and in his condition. But we would have been altogether disappointed because there was nothing desirable about him. Just uh, no big deal. Plain. Common. There was nothing external about him that would have attracted people or made people desire him or want to be around him physically, right? Verse 3 gets to the heart and tells us that he was despised and rejected by men, that he was a man of sorrows and was familiar with grief, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And Philip would have explained that. He would have said, here's our king and he is not uh, no kind of royal privilege, no wealth, no good looks, a lot of hardship. In fact, he's hated and he's rejected and he's suffered and he's despised and the people don't seem to care about him. Philip would have explained all that to the Ethiopian man. How, how so many people rejected Jesus in his life. How in one instance, uh, a crowd would have killed him on the spot had he not escaped. They were ready to throw him off a cliff and that was in his own hometown. How many of his followers left in the minute he stopped performing for them through his miracles. How he had no place to lay his head. How the Pharisees totally despised him and opposed him. How one of his own disciples betrayed him. But on top of all that, think of all the turmoil that he faced as God seeing these people, his creation following Satan, playing fast and loose with their own souls, reveling in their sin, ignoring him, turning away from him, and ultimately killing him. A man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, you bet he was. Philip would have explained that. Philip would have then moved on to verses 4 through 6 of Isaiah 53 and told the Ethiopian man how Jesus was afflicted. Verse 6 really is the key because it tells us why he went to that cross. For the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now look, sheep are dumb animals. And they are prone to wander and go their own way. And Isaiah 53 tells us that we are all like wandering sheep, referring to our sin. And he's telling us that we are sinners who are in an eternal dilemma. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the problem with sin is that it condemns us to hell. One little sin separates us from holy God and the price for sin is eternal wrath. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, the price for sin is death. So as sinners, which we all are, we all stand condemned, doomed, lost in our sin. And on our own, we will face eternal wrath because that's the just price, the just wages for sin. God is perfect. We are sinners. And the only way we can ever stand in the presence of a perfect and holy God and survive is if our sin is paid for in full and on our own. We can't do it because we can't pay the wages of our own sin by ourselves. No, all we can do is face the punishment for them. But the good news is that the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of the sin of us all who believe. And Philip would have certainly explained that. So your sin as a believer that condemns you to eternity in hell has been placed onto Jesus. And what we find is that on the cross, Jesus died for the believer's sin so that you wouldn't have to die. And he's the only one who could do that for us. He took our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. He bore the punishment that we deserved. And because of the cross, we who believe stand forgiven, saved, cleansed, 
heaven forever because the punishment that you deserve was placed onto Christ and God treated Jesus as if he lived your life of sin so he could then treat you as if you lived Christ's life of perfection and now the sin that condemned you to eternity in hell has been laid onto Christ and has been paid for in full by Christ on that cross. And so as a believer, Jesus went to the cross to pay the price of death, hell for you. And Philip would have certainly explained all that to the Ethiopian man. Isaiah 53 goes on to tell us that he, Jesus, was stricken by God, smitten, afflicted, pierced, crushed, punished, wounded. Why? Because of your sin as a believer. That sin was laid on him. Look, Jesus was betrayed. Then he was ridiculed and despised by his creation and he was mocked and he was beaten brutally. He was insulted. He remained quiet in the face of lies and falsehood. He was blindfolded and punched in the face time and time and time again. He was beaten in the head with a reed that resembled a broomstick. He was scourged, whipped 39 times with a whip that often exposed people's internal organs by the time it was over. He was then mocked again. He had a a crown of thorns, huge thorns shoved into his head. He carried his cross down the street until he couldn't carry it anymore. A public spectacle. He had nails driven through his wrists and feet and was hung on a cross until he died. He hung on the cross for six hours, struggling for every breath until he was gone, utterly crushed. Philip would have certainly explained that to him. But that's just the physical. Because what happened to Jesus spiritually was much, 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 much worse. Think about it, spiritually speaking, every believer's sins since creation, all of that sin, our terrible sin that God hates and that God must punish, it was placed onto Jesus and God poured out His wrath against all that sin onto Christ so it wouldn't have to be poured out onto us who believe. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because of your sin and mine. And all that wrath was poured out onto Jesus so He wouldn't have to pour it out onto you. You think God loves you? Look at what He's done for you. Philip would have certainly explained that to him. Philip would have then moved on to verses 7-9 through that tells us how Jesus is the Lamb of God. But what does that really mean? Well, Philip would have explained it. And he would have gone into the Old Testament at that point, I believe, uh, explaining how sacrificing animals was a common worship practice for the people of God. What would happen was this. A person who had sinned brought an animal with no defects to a priest. That unblemished animal symbolized the moral perfection demanded by holy God. And the person then laid his hand on the head of that animal to symbolize the perfect person's complete identification with that animal as his substitute. The animal was then killed. Symbolically, that person's sins were transferred to that animal. And then the animal was burned on the altar, signifying the person's complete dedication to God. And the point was for the people to see how utterly wretched and terrible their sin was, for them to repent of that and turn to God in faith, and then for them to devote themselves to the Lord. See, sin's horrible, right? The price for sin is death. Thus an animal was slaughtered and the blood was shed. And repentance and faith and a heart that loved the Lord was a must in doing this. But let me ask you, could killing animal any animal really take away sin? What's the Bible say? No, absolutely not. Hebrews is clear about that. And what we find is that while these animal sacrifices didn't pay for the people's sin, it did allow those sins to be rolled forward and placed onto Jesus. And then our sins as believers today were rolled backwards and placed onto Jesus. And Christ is the center of all of it. And when Jesus died on that cross, He was truly the ultimate 
sacrificial lamb, the perfect sin offering, the ultimate substitute for us who believe. But look, when Jesus died on that cross, sin wasn't just rolled forward. No, it was paid for in full once and for all. Him dying for us, taking our eternal punishment that condemns us to hell onto himself so we who believe could be saved, forgiven, and given hope and peace and joy and glory. And Philip would have certainly explained that to him. He would have pointed out that as our perfect lamb, he didn't just, uh, he didn't open his mouth. In his affliction, he didn't say a word, right? And as he's being led to the slaughter, Jesus didn't defend himself. He remained silent and took the beating for us. He remained quiet and went to the slaughter, the cross for us. He, he just closed his mouth and took the suffering and the affliction for us. And so he died and went to the tomb even though he was perfectly innocent, even though we are the ones who sinned. Why didn't he speak up? Why didn't he tell the truth? Why didn't he destroy them all? Why didn't he just do a miracle and escape it? Because our perfect lamb had to be slaughtered so that we could live. So he remained silent. Philip would have then moved on to verses 10 through 12 of Isaiah 53, and he would have explained to the Ethiopian man how Jesus was crushed for us who believe, how God gave his son to save us, how it was God's will to have Jesus crushed and see him suffer so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. Think about that. That's the desire of God. To have Jesus disfigured for us who believe. It was a father's pleasure to pour out his wrath onto Christ so it wouldn't have to be poured out onto us. And so Philip would have clearly explained to the Ethiopian man how, how Jesus is our sin bearer and how he justifies believers and makes us right with God because of what he accomplished in our place on that cross. Charles Spurgeon had this to say about Christ. What the sun is to the day, what the moon is to the night, what the dew is to the flower, such is Jesus Christ to us. What bread is to the hungry, clothes to the naked, the shadow of a great rock to the traveler in a weary land, such is Jesus Christ to us. What the husband is to his spouse, what the head is to the body, such is Jesus Christ to us. And then he said, I would sooner lie on a bed and ache in every limb with the death sweat standing on my brow by the month and year persecuted despised and forsaken poor and naked with the dogs to lick my sores and the devils to tempt my soul and have Christ for my friend than I would sit in the palaces of wicked kings and all their wealth and luxury and pampering and sin why Mr. Spurgeon why because if you have Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior You have everything. Everything. Nothing really matters without Jesus, but if you have Him, you have it all. And Philip would have explained all this to this Ethiopian man, beginning in Isaiah 53 and then going on from there throughout the Old Testament Scriptures, talking about Jesus, the beautiful Savior for all who believe. What happened next? Verses 36 through 40. Let's look. Verse 36. As they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is Christ is the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Now, when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way sad. What? rejoicing, of course. But Philip was found at Azotus. 
And passing through, he preached in all the cities until he came to Caesarea. So, here we find that along with everything else that Philip told the Ethiopian man regarding Jesus, he also told the man about how a person is saved by faith alone. Faith in Christ alone and not by works. How a person is saved by faith in Jesus, in His person and His work based on what He has done, not on us. Philip also spoke to the man about baptism, how every person who truly believes and is saved will then respond to that salvation by being baptized in water. How do we know this? Because the Ethiopian man brings it up, right? And it was certainly Philip who explained that to him. So how's a person saved? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? By believing this good news about Jesus. Not just believing in Christ's existence, but believing on Him as revealed in the Scriptures, in His person and in His work. See, saving faith is trust in Jesus Christ as a living person for forgiveness of sins and for eternal life with God. It's a personal trust in Jesus to save me. It's saying, Lord, I believe in you. I surrender to you. I know that I can't save myself, but you can save a wretched sinner like me because of what you did on that cross and because you rose up from the dead. And so I believe, Lord, and now I give myself over to you as Lord and Savior. I put my full trust and my full confidence in you now, Lord, not in myself. I believe, save my desperate soul. And that's how people are saved. By grace through faith in Christ alone because of His work on our behalf, His perfect life, His gory death, and His glorious resurrection. And then, once you believed and are truly saved, what do you do? Well, you respond to Him by being baptized, immersed in water, which is the outward display of what Christ does for you when He saves you. The testimony to the watching world that you're indeed a child of God. So baptism in water is important as a sign that one has been justified by faith, saved by faith, and also as a public declaration of that faith in Christ, and also membership into the body of Christ, the church. But please understand that water baptism has nothing to do with being saved. No, it's a work that we do in response to our salvation. And so, the Ethiopian man takes all this in, and as they're traveling along, he sees some water. Hey, there's some water. What hinders me from being baptized? Well, Nothing hinders you from being baptized if you really truly believe, right? I mean, if you believe in Jesus in repentant faith, uh, you should most certainly respond by being baptized. Nothing hinders you. Now please note that while verse 37 is a great verse, it doesn't appear in the oldest and best manuscripts of the Bible that we have. Therefore, it was most certainly added in here in about the second century, which really bugs me. It really annoys me. I mean, why would a scribe do that when it's not needed? He apparently added it thinking that there's no statement in here about the eunuch's faith, but adding to the Scriptures is never wise. Good thing we have thousands of good manuscripts of the Bible that tell us things like this so that we can know what was originally written down in the Word of God. And verse 37 certainly isn't necessary since the faith of the man is both assured here and it's clear. He was a true believer. He confessed Christ as Savior and Lord. He repented of his sin. And he wanted to live for the glory of God in light of what Jesus did for all who believe on the cross. Yeah, this guy was a true believer and now he wants to respond by being baptized. And so seventh, the Ethiopian man was baptized. See, his faith was real and he wanted to be baptized. So what hindered him? Nothing hindered him. Verse 38, so he commanded the chariot to stand still and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. That's what believers do, right? right? Come on. Assumed answer is right. (laughs) That's what believers do. That's how 
they respond to the salvation that Jesus freely gives. Note that the Bible teaches believers' baptism, a decision that you personally make on your own behalf for yourself, and it also teaches immersion in water. The word in the Greek literally means to immerse, and then notice this. Notice how it says that they went down into the water, and then verse 39, they came up out of the water. They did that because the Ethiopian man had to be dunked in that water, for if he was merely sprinkled, they wouldn't have had to go down into the water or come up out of it. And so the newly saved man responded to his salvation by being baptized. Isn't that good? Don't you love that? What, why share this narrative with us? To show us how the gospel is spreading to the ends of the earth. See, what's taking place in this remote desert road will impact the course of the church for centuries to come. And note that some of the most important names in early church history were from Africa. Cyprian, Tertullian, and Augustine, to name just three. And you might notice one or two of those names. See, every soul is important, Right? And you never know how God will use one single person for His glory. This man was a great man in his country. He's now going to go back to his country with the joy of the Lord in his heart and and on his lips. And how is he not going to share this good news, this good soul-saving news with those around him? See, one soul can impact a whole region for the Lord. Why not one church? Why not us? Eighth look, Philip was caught up and the Ethiopian man rejoiced in the Lord, verses 39 through 40. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away so that the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Philip was found at Azotus. He passed through preaching in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is a, this is amazing. Philip is there one second and then the next, just like that, he is gone, boom, just like that. That's an amazing thing. That's a, that's a miracle, right? I mean, clearly that is a miracle of God, without a doubt, an undeniable miracle. There he is and then he's gone. So why did God do miracles like this in those days? To confirm the word of God. Now, the word that of God is fully sufficient now and complete in one book of the Bible. And we don't have miracles like this as normative today like they were then during this time that the apostles were here. But God still does miracles through the prayers of his people. And God can do whatever God wants to do, right? Whenever God wants to do it. But it's not the same today it was as it was then, clearly. Because again, the purpose isn't there now that we have the completed word of God as our authority. So Philip was caught up away to another place in an instant, and what did he do? He preached. Right? He preached. Well, what did the Ethiopian do? He rejoiced, right? Isn't that the way it should be? Preaching and rejoicing. God's people rejoice over him and what he's done for us. Anybody? Right? This is what we do, right? And, and we also go out and, and preach the good news so that Christ's saving and eternal joy can be experienced by others. So Philip now finds himself in Azotus about 30 miles away. Oh, what was that trip like? <laughs> it was a trip, that's for sure. Philip then made his way up the coast, preaching as he went until he came to Caesarea, which was a major seaport city of the day. You look at this and say, well, I I wish I could do something really effective for the Lord. But, you know, I'm not like Philip, and I've never been transported like that either, you know. Um, Well, no one was like Philip except for Philip. So what do you do? You do what you can do for the glory of God. Right? That's, That's what you do. And who knows if God will use you to bring the next Billy Graham to saving faith. 
You say, well, I only have five kids in Sunday school class. It's just five kids. So you give yourself to those five kids. Because you don't know what God's going to do in their lives. As John MacArthur said, reach out to whoever God places in your path and don't ever evaluate the importance of anything. No, let God evaluate that. Don't minimize it. Magnify it. And he's right. And now look. Look at the newly saved Ethiopian man. He's filled with the joy of the Lord. And he certainly can't wait to get home and tell his loved ones, his friends, his co-workers about Jesus. I mean, there's no way he's going to hold this in, right? Jesus saved him, and now he lives for Jesus, filled with joy and overflowing with love. How could he not tell others about Jesus? How could we not? May God speak to us this morning for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those of us who are saved, Lord, I pray that we would never lose sight of what you've done for us and that we would continually be filled with joy because of who you are and what you've done, Lord. Help us to be a rejoicing people and help us to be a preaching people, people who share your good news with those around us because we can't help it. Speak to us. Convict and encourage us. And I pray that uh, we would all see the value of a single soul. And that you would use us where you have us for your glory. Help us not to minimize it, but to exalt it and to exalt you where you have us. Speak to our hearts now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.